0: Dreams that you're placing in people's hearts that need that need to be accomplished for the kingdom of God. Father God, there's a desperation here on this earth for the sons and daughters to rise up and be the church, Father God. So they gotta have some vision for their life. They gotta have some vision for their family. Father God, right now I thank you that you're imparting vision into hearts, into lives right now. I thank you that you're speaking and you're moving, you're still working today, Father God. God. The God of old is just as, uh, uh, the God of today is just as alive as the God of old. I thank you that you are moving and speaking, and that you still uh, perform miracles, Father God, that you still heal. In Jesus' name, we thank you that you're healing bodies. We thank you that you're healing minds. We thank you that you're, you're healing emotional wounds, Father God. Whatever it may be, you know the need, and you know how to fix it, Father God. So I thank you. We just bring it to your feet this morning. You see, that's the key in that song. It says everything to the feet of Jesus. Man, he can't fix something that you don't bring to him. So right now, Father God, we bring those things which have been ailing us and we put them at your feet and we get them out of our mind. We're not going to think and dwell on those things any longer, but we put them at your feet, Lord Jesus, and we ask you to take them and rid them from us so healing can come, Father God. In Jesus' name, I thank you that this is a house of miracles, and this is a house of healing, and this is a house where people receive vision uh, for their lives, Father God, so they can go out and do what you've called them to do, what you've made them to be, who you've made them to be, Father God. You've made us. Uh, sons and daughters. And we're not just here to merely exist, but we're here to be priests and kings and, 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 and execute authority here on this earth. So I thank you, Lord Jesus, for the vision that you're giving us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Glory to God. Amen. Hallelujah. Whoa. Um, it's good to be with you all this morning. I'm really excited. Um, I always count it as an honor um, when I get to teach um and uh you know it's funny cuz it's national talk like a pirate day <laughs> so i have a pirate joke that i thought would go along with it so um you know it's good to laugh in church um yeah so there was a a captain of a pirate ship and he had a new shipmate on board and he uh the shipmate wanted to come up to him and ask him a few questions cuz he looked really rugged and you know he looked like a pirate he was a pirate's pirate and uh, the shipmate comes up to him and, and he sees that he's just like got all these battle scars. And he goes, hey, uh, Captain, um, how did you get the peg leg? And he goes, Arr. I fell off the ship in alligator infested waters and bit my leg off. Wow, that's, that's an intense story. That's a pirate story right there. He goes, how did you get that hook on your hand? He goes, Arr, I was in, a, I was in a, a sword fight and they cut my, cut my hand off, but I still won you're a pirate's pirate. He goes, how'd you get that eye patch? He goes, "Ah, a bird pooped in me eye. He goes, well, that doesn't sound very heroic. He's like, how'd you lose your eye from a bird pooping in it? He goes, oh, I know, I know. I was still getting used to the hook. (laughs) All right. Turn to your neighbor, say, you look good in the presence of God. You guys can be seated. (laughs) All right. Good deal. <laughs> sometimes that joke goes over well, sometimes it doesn't, but uh, I'm glad it did this morning. Hallelujah! All right. So um, let's see what I got here. All right, we um, we're wrapping up a series on the church. Undeniable. I have to apologize to my cameramen. I always got to apologize when I preach because I give them a workout because I'm walking like crazy. So give give our cameramen and women a hand. They do a great job. Um, I walk all the time. When I pray, I pace back and forth. I mean, it's just, I'm, I don't know. I just like to walk. So uh, I apologize in advance. So we're wrapping up this series called The Undeniable Church. Um, and I think we have today, and then I believe Pastor Mark will really... Just put a nice bow on it next week. It's this uh, long-standing series we have going on um, called The Church Undeniable. And so I want to recap just a little bit this morning. Most of this that I'm going to say here is probably uh, not news to you, but it's really good to be reminded of who you are. You are the church, and you are supposed to be undeniable. So the church really, it doesn't exist um, as a hobby or a fad. It's not there for you to come on Christmas and Easter. Easter and fulfill a religious obligation and give yourself a pat on the back. It doesn't give you brownie points with God to just come on those days and just treat it as kind of your spiritual Christian duty. I need to go to church a few times a year, right? That's not what it's, it's meant to be. Um, it's here to be an undeniable force you are here to be an undeniable force in this world it's it's not a building the church isn't a building it's a body of believers who are on mission to serve Jesus to be trained and equipped and sent out to build his kingdom and to change the world around them that's what this place is anyone and everyone can come we love you but here's the thing you're going to get trained and equipped to go out and do the work of ministry that's why you come to church yes i love it when you laugh i love it when we get to tell jokes i love it when you have a good message that just makes you feel good but if there's no transformation and if you don't take that out to your world then you're not being the church Undeniable, much easier said than done. Listen, I'm an introvert, and I know that might shock a lot of you guys. I'm the person that if I see you, even if I know you really well in the grocery store, I go down a different aisle. That's just me. And But here's the great thing, that I don't have to do things just by myself that the Spirit of God empowers us to do that which we wouldn't do by ourselves. So sometimes I think maybe in the grocery store, I just need to access a little bit of grace and a little bit of, of that supernatural courage so I can go down the uh, the right aisle and maybe say hi to someone. But it's not just saying hi to people in the grocery store. It's about listening to the Spirit of God on the inside of you. Every encounter, every interaction that you have, the Spirit of God wants to be involved and he wants to take what you learn here so you can apply it out there and really change someone else's life. You don't have to bring a pulpit right into the store, but God might just say, hey, pay for that person's groceries. Just tell them that I love them. Hey, let that person cut you in line. Hey, that's okay. They don't know how to use a four-way stop. I know it frustrates me too, but just let them have their way, Right? There's just certain things that we can do in our lives that really helps minister to other people. And uh, I love, uh, me and John, we were just talking about this on our podcast. Uh, I can't remember who said it, it was an old time minister. But he said, preach the gospel and sometimes use words. Right, so our lives are really meant to be an undeniable force. So um, the New Testament Greek word for church is ecclesia. Um, it comes from two Greek words. The word "ek." Go ahead and turn to your neighbor and say "ek," right? The Greek word "ek," which means "out of," and then the other Greek word "klesis," which means "a calling." All right. So we, as the church, have literally been called out of something. We've been called to be separate from something, right? So first, we're to be separate. From the world again. This hopefully this is just recap for you. We're to be separate from the world, as Jesus prays um, in John seventeen sixteen. He says, "I'm sending you into the world. You're not of the world, but I'm sending you into the world." So we got to be in it, not of it. We got a lot of cool T-shirts that say that. You know what? Not of this world. Well, it's, that's biblical. We are not of this world. We are citizens of heaven, sent into the world to change and affect it. So we are called to be separate from the world. Um, and he's. Uh, Turn to 2 Corinthians 6.14. Um, just, it's just a point that we are to be separate from uh, the world. Verse 14 says this. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness And what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with uh, Belial, and what part has a believer with an unbeliever, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are temples of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Let's just uh, talk about this in New Testament times. Listen, uh, I'll just say this. I can't change something that I'm not willing to engage with. So there is a part of going into the world, going into the darkness, going into those places, and And being a light in the darkness. So there's a difference between when he says don't fellowship with them. It's talking about breaking bread and really having close fellowship. But you can't change something if you're not willing to engage with it. So that's not an excuse to be an introvert and say you know God told me be separate. Right? (laughs) That's basically him telling me walk down the other aisle. Not not really. Uh, you have to be willing to engage. You can't pull someone out of darkness if you're not willing to go into darkness. Um, but uh, let's look at verse 17 here. It says, therefore, come out from among them and be Separate, says the Lord. Um, this is Paul, and he's actually quoting a verse from Isaiah. Isaiah 52, 11 says this, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her and be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. This is interesting. The sentence, go out from the midst of her. That phrase, from the midst, is the Greek word, tavek, which means from the center, and the Greek word for her is atos, which means self. So we can deduce that we are called to not be, uh, 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 we are called to be separate from ourselves. We are called to not be so self-centered as well. Come on, coming out from the midst of yourself. So let's recap. We're called to be separate from the world, although we're in the world and called to minister to the world. We're called to be separate from sin, and we're called to be separate from ourselves. Amen? Matthew 10, 38 um, uh, and 39, Jesus says this, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it, right? You've got to lose yourself. You've got to give up your own will, your own desires, your own ambitions. Put them down, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. So you're called to be separate from yourself, amen? So the word church here again is that word... uh, Uh, Ecclesia, Matthew 16, 18. He says this, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. That word is Ecclesia, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So the word here, um, Ecclesia, which by the way, the rock that Jesus was referring to is not Peter, so I'm sorry Catholics. Uh, It's it's two separate words, uh, Petra for Peter and Petros for what he builds his church upon. And really, it's the bedrock of the church. It's the essence of the gospel, which is the revelation that Peter got, what, a few verses before, which is this. Jesus is the Christ Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. It's upon that revelation or that rock that Jesus builds his church. That's what we're built upon, that Jesus is the Christ and he is the Messiah. Can I get an amen? Right? Upon this revelation, he builds his ecclesia or his called out ones. And Jesus didn't say it's upon this rock that I build my temple. You know, he didn't say it's upon this rock that I build my synagogue. He said ecclesia. And I think he was very, very intentional with these words. And if you were here when Jen Tringell was here a few uh or what was it two years now? Two years ago, then you know where I'm going with this. She she highlighted this, and it was just beautiful. So um, ecclesia is a term that really predated Jesus by like hundreds of years. It was something that was already in motion. It was a, a governmental term that the Greeks used, but the Roman Empire really kind of perfected this term, ecclesia. So what would happen is when Rome would conquer a territory... They would send out an ecclesia before, and what they would do, it was was a small group of upstanding Roman citizens who would invade the culture, and they would infiltrate, and they would uh, uh, get people accustomed and and acclimated to the way of Roman life. They teach the Roman language, they teach the culture, so that everybody would be walking and talking like Romans. That's what the ecclesia was sent out to do, they were an arm of the government and they would enact and they would enforce the policies and the decrees of Rome. So let's take it uh, one step further. So Christ's body on this earth is his church, and we're not a religious body, we're actually a governmental body, Jesus has established his kingdom, it's the kingdom of heaven, he put it here on this earth, and he sent us, you and me, the ecclesia, into the world, right, to establish kingdom influence, and culture, and the language of the kingdom, the lifestyle of the kingdom, so that people around us will begin to see what the kingdom is about, they'll be able to taste and see what, that the Lord is good, why, because we're getting them acclimated. We're getting them acculturated to what Jesus is doing here on this earth. We are called to enact and enforce the policies of heaven to those around us. Amen? And it's not, I'm not talking about tyrannical government. I don't force my way upon someone, but I show them, uh, 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 I show them the kingdom culture by the way that I live, right? Being salt, being life, being undeniable in faith, hope, love, mercy, forgiveness, Come on, we are enacting the promises of God here on this earth. And yeah, we're still a governmental body, so I like to think of it this way. You know, the devil is the God, small g, right, of this world. That's just the truth right now. Uh, the devil is the god of this world and what does he come to do he comes to kill steal and destroy he comes to bring sickness he comes to br- to bring despair that those aren't the policies of heaven so we as Christians we need to get we need to understand that we now are the ecclesia so we're coming in and we're changing the culture we're changing the culture of sickness and despair and hopelessness and we're showing mercy when people don't come on we are the ecclesia and we are Called to enact and enforce the policies of the kingdom, Amen. So this was Jesus' plan from the beginning. The church was always, always, always meant to be undeniable, but undeniable. But I said this before, um, last time when I taught. The church cannot become undeniable to the world around them until the power and the truths found in God's word can become undeniable to us. Right? You can't lead people to a place you've never been yourself. I can't bring you to light if I'm still in darkness. If I want to bring transformation power, I must first be transformed, amen? So that's what it means when the church is is undeniable. You are the ecclesia of Jesus and you are sent to infiltrate and influence culture around you, all right? So undeniable, the word undeniable means this. It means unable to be denied or disputed, it means that it's proven, it means unassailable or incontestable. So uh, I'll give you just a few undeniable facts about life. This was one from last time when I taught. I really preached, I I had made mention that the dad bod has been stalking me for a few years now and it lies at the door and waits and its desire is to have me, right? (laughs) Uh, it seems in some ways a little bit undeniable, but I'm fighting it off, okay? Here's another one from last time. Here's something that's undeniable. It's an undeniable fact. Any, dr- any beverage tastes better out of a glass bottle. It's undeniable. Come on. Can I get a witness? Absolutely. Here's another undeniable fact. Your parents' signature will always look better than yours. It's like, ugh. When I was a kid, I'd watch my dad sign things, and then I would go and, like, write my signature, like a million times, and it looked like a four-year-old writing in crayon. It was terrible. But that's just, that's just the truth. Your parents have a better signature than you do. Here's another, here's something else that's an undeniable fact. This is just the way you do it. The only way you brush your teeth is you wet the toothbrush first. You put the toothpaste on, and then you wet it again. And then you brush your teeth. Okay? I don't know why. I don't make the rules. I just follow them. Come on. It's undeniable. All right? We said uh, last time, you know, when you think of baseball, or no, you think of basketball, who was uh, an undeniable force, un- unstoppable, incontestable? That's Shaq, come on. He was undeniable. Um, so, but, yeah, good, we, we laugh in church. Um, those are just a few undeniable facts about life, but um, when it comes to things that are proven and incontestable, undeniable to me, um, I can't help but think about the mercy and the forgiveness of God. Come on, is anybody thankful for the mercy and forgiveness of God? We're gonna go into that a little bit this morning, talking about the mercy of God. And I don't think we talk about mercy enough. I don't think we reflect and think about mercy enough. Right? We love grace, grace is awesome. Give me the blessings, right? Grace, the most popular song basically in the world, it's actually the most recorded song ever, is John Newton's Amazing Grace. Right? We love amazing grace. How sweet the sound, right? The saved a wretch like me. I love the grace. I love the blessings, but not as much mercy. You know, when I was a kid, I really liked to focus on the fact that I got to go to the park and not on the fact that I didn't get a spanking, even though I was like committing mutiny against my parents just before, right? I like to focus on the, on the good part. Yeah, yeah, we got to go to the park. We don't talk about how bad I was. So we like to focus on the, the blessings, I get it. Um, we prefer to focus on grace over mercy. And, uh, but here's the thing, we, we should have a healthy concept of, of grace, but here's the reality. I could, never, I could never walk in the grace of God if he didn't first extend his mercy. Amen. Turn over, turn over to Ephesians. Can I get my water, someone? I'm sorry. I thought not singing this morning would help me, but uh, man, I'm drying out. Talk amongst yourselves. (laughs) All right. Are you in Ephesians yet? (laughs) Ephesians 2. We're going to read a few um, 1 through 7. And you, he made alive. Say, I'm alive. in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That is a Selah scripture. Selah means just stop and think about that. Wow, Selah moment. So everything mentioned in verses one through three, those were the things that were deserving of death, okay? We, our behavior disqualified us from relationship, but God was rich in mercy. He was rich in compassion. He was rich in forgiveness. Then the verses 6 and 7 really are all about the grace. He raised us up, and what did he do? He gave us a seat at the table. Man, that's a true rags-to-riches type of story right there. You know, you might see those on TV. The greatest rags-to-riches story, man, is what Jesus did for you. Because of his mercy, he took you out of what you rightfully deserved and then gave you a seat at the table. So if mercy is Oh, so mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. That's a simple definition of mercy. Not receiving what you rightfully deserve, okay? So if mercy is not receiving what we do deserve, then grace is receiving what we don't deserve. That's the unmerited favor part. The grace isn't based on what I did. It's based on what Jesus did. And I really like how Pastor Marshall Townsley you know, Pastor Mark is teaching at his church right now. I love how he describes this. Write it down. Mercy creates a new opportunity and grace fills it with success. I'll say that again. Mercy creates a new opportunity and grace fills it with success. So we need to have a proper understanding of both, really, because God does not give one without the other. Mercy and grace are both ours, and we both need to really understand what they're about. So let's talk just a little bit more about mercy this morning. Turn to Luke seven forty-seven. He says, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And that's a very, very powerful statement. This is telling me that my love for God is directly connected to my forgiveness from God. My love for God is directly connected to my forgiveness from God. Someone who is forgiven much loves much and someone who is forgiven little loves little. Let's break this down a little bit more and let's look at the context of this uh, this story starting in verse 36. Um, I'll just break it down for you. There was a Pharisee named Simon and he invited Jesus over to his house to have dinner, okay? And there was a certain sinful woman found, she found out that Jesus was going to be there and she showed up at this place. And I think she probably found out about him from the, the verses before. I think in, in chapter or in verse 16, it says that Jesus uh, raised a widow's son from the dead. And then after that, it says that everyone was so amazed that that news of what Jesus did spread all throughout Judea and the surrounding areas. So this lady probably heard that testimony of how he raised that boy from the dead and, and it gave her hope. And testimony always gives hope. Come on. It's a good thing to share your testimony. A testimony always brings hope. She got hope from that thing, said, man, if, if he can raise him from the dead, he can raise me out of the deadness and the darkness of my past. So she came and she found him. Uh... Um, So the woman comes to Simon's house. She sees Jesus there, and what does she do? She falls at his feet. She begins to weep. She's literally crying all over Jesus' feet, and then she begins to wipe his feet with her hair, and she begins to to kiss his feet, and then she takes the most expensive thing that she has. It's an alabaster jar full of perfume. She breaks it, and then she anoints Jesus with it. It's a beautiful story, and then Simon gets his robe all in a bundle, he gets triggered, and he says to himself, man, wow, if Jesus was really a prophet, he would know that this chick is a vile and rank sinner, and look what she's doing to his feet. Jesus needs a wet wipe. Somebody get him a wet wipe. That's disgusting. No, and this, this is the real fun part, because Jesus is a prophet, He knows exactly who this woman is, and he knows exactly what Simon is thinking. And then he confronts him on the whole thing. And so after that whole ordeal, uh, Jesus goes, hey, um, guess what? I'm going to confront you with a parable. And parables are Jesus' way of really hiding smart things from dumb people. Uh, Really, Jesus hides something in a parable for you to really seek out the truth. Because if you really desire to know something, then you'll you'll seek it out. He wants to know who's hungry. He wants to know who really desires. And that's why Jesus spoke in parables a lot, because some of the things that he was, actually everything that he was proclaiming was such profound truth, and it was going over so many people's heads. And so he was like, you know what, I'm going to talk in parables, and those who really desire to know will know. So he begins to share a parable um, with, with Simon. So uh, starting in verse 41 of that um, Luke 7, he says, There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. So the two debtors in this parable, I believe, are representing Simon and this woman. Jesus points out how terrible of a host Simon was. See, back then, everybody walked everywhere, barefoot or in terrible sandals, and their foot, foots, <laughs> their feet were nasty, right? So it was very customary when you went into someone's house, they'd say, hey, have some water, wash your feet. Um, and that's what they would do. And so Simon didn't do any of those things. He was a terrible host. He didn't greet Jesus with a kiss. He didn't uh, offer him anything, and he didn't wash his feet. But this woman, she was, it wasn't even her house. She did all of this stuff. She loved much because uh, going into verse 7, it talks about um, her heart, really her heart behind the matter. 47 says, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. See, she loved much because she was aware of how great her sins were and how desperately she needed mercy and forgiveness. Simon, on the other hand, didn't show any love towards Jesus. He was a terrible host, right? He who forgives little loves little. He wasn't aware of his sins. He didn't really even see the need for forgiveness. He didn't see the need for forgiveness. Listen, if you don't see the need to be forgiven, you can never fully love God or other people the way you need to. You won't, be, you won't be grateful for what he's done. If I am walking through life and I don't understand why I need a savior, I don't have a concept of mercy. I have no understanding of the sin that I've committed against him. And if I don't see the need to be forgiven, I will never love God to the fullest. Right? He who is forgiven little loves little, but he who has been forgiven much loves much. So when the scripture talks about that, it's not talking about how long or short of a list your sins are and how that compares or determines your love for God. It's really talking about your awareness. Okay? Those who recognize the needs for God's mercy and forgiveness will be able to love him more because it humbles you. It puts you in a state of awe and gratitude. The mercies of God. I did not deserve this. Yet, He spared the punishment. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy, right? So Jesus didn't die more for a long list of sins than he did for people who've committed a short list of sins. And really, it's foolishness to compare it that way anyways because just one sin, just one, disqualifies you from relationship with God. It does. So we get in this... We get in this habit of comparing ourselves to others and we get in a works-based mindset and we say, you know what, I've done a lot of good so I should be all right. Um, And then other people go, man, I've done, I'm I'm a royal screw-up, I better do something good so I can get into heaven. You know, it's not a works-based system, it's a Jesus-based system. And Jesus didn't sin, right? And that's why he had to die for us. So, uh, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our salvation our, our, salvation, our salvation, isn't predicated on the works-based system. It's predicated on the Jesus-based system, right? Uh, he didn't deserve to die, right? Yet he did. As an act of overwhelming mercy, he took our punishment. Amen. So, again, mercy is not receiving what you deserve. We need to look at where we are now, right, seated with Jesus, and look at where we should be which is actually hell. You know, people say, man, I, need, I deserve this. You know, I, I, should, I should be treated better than this. I deserve better than this. Eh, that's a slippery slope because if we want to talk about what we deserve, we should all not be here right now. We should be in hell <laughs> because we've all sinned. We've all violated God's law, but the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he never did, and he took the punishment. Amen. Charles Spurgeon said this, God's mercy is so great that you may sooner drain the sea of its water or deprive the sun of its light or make space too narrow than diminish the great mercy of God. Micah 7, 18 says this, who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. God delights in mercy. And he always has. You know, sometimes we look at the God of the Old Testament as the mean, scary God, and the God of the New Testament as the grace-loving God. You know, the Old Testament God is that really harsh coach that makes you run laps forever. And the New Testament God is, you know, handing out participation awards. No, it's not like that. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he was just as merciful back then as he is today. And really, you can see his mercy in action if we look at the Ark of the Covenant. And this is where it gets interesting. Um, You know, we often like to say that the Ark of the Covenant is what contained the presence of God. But if we're being technically accurate here, it didn't contain the presence of God. What it contained was a representation of iniquity that deserved judgment. It deserved judgment. If you look at Exodus 25 and in Hebrews chapter 9, you can read that the Ark of the Covenant contained three items. Number one, the, what was inside the Ark was a golden jar of manna. Okay, this represented man's rejection of God's provision. God rained down manna from heaven for Israel while they were in the wilderness. He sustained them with heavenly divine food and they got so sick and tired of it, they rejected it and even resented it. So that jar was placed in the, in the ark. Number two was Aaron's rod, that was placed in the ark. This represented man's rejection of God's appointed leadership. They didn't like Aaron and Moses. They complained about them. They wanted new leaders, and at times they wanted to lead themselves. Place it in the ark. The third item in the ark was the covenant stones or the 12 commandments. This represented man's disobedience concerning God's standard of holiness, and it also showed man's inability to measure up to God's holiness in his own efforts. You can't do it on your own. Three things. Worthy of judgment. Man's rejection of God's provision, man's rejection of God's leadership, and man's rejection of God's law and way of doing things. So what did he do? He placed them in the ark, and then he covered the ark with mercy. What sat on top of the lid, what was called the mercy seat. And whatever was placed upon the mercy seat, what was, whatever was over it, atoned for the sins That were on the inside come on so what they would do is each and every year the priest on the day of atonement which is yom kippur they would take the blood of an innocent animal and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and what that would do it was it would atone for the sins of israel for one year just one year and really you're like why just one year it's a total act of mercy because Here's the thing, although that it's a good sacrifice, it wasn't a perfect and acceptable sacrifice. Because, I mean, if animals were sinning all the time, then you could take an innocent animal and it would pay for the sins of, of the animals. But really, men were sinning, so it, it needed to take an uh, innocent man. You can't atone for the sins of someone by using someone who's guilty of the same sin, right? The person had to be perfect and innocent to atone for the sin so God, in His great mercy, allowed animal sacrifice for so many years until Jesus came into the world. Right, so that's an act of mercy in and of itself. But right, so um, uh. Let's see, through one man sin entered the world and only through one man sin could be atoned for. Not just one man, but it had to be an innocent man. So if we look at New Testament, God still hasn't changed his mind. He delights in showing mercy and mercy triumphs over judgment. This is where Jesus steps in. Only the blood of the innocent can atone for those who are guilty. Jesus lived the sinless life. He died on the cross for us and because of mercy he took the punishment for us and this is the this is the awesome thing Hebrews chapter 9 if you read Hebrews chapter 9 it talks about the earthly tabernacle in the old in the old testament like Solomon's temple Moses' temple David's temple they were all representations of a temple that was in heaven the heavenly temple is what they were all like representing and it says this that God or that Jesus when he died he went into the heavenly temple and not with blood of bulls and goats but with his own blood He went in and he sprinkled his own blood on the mercy seat and said, my perfect blood atones for your sin, everyone's sin, forever. Come on. His blood sat upon the mercy seat, just like in the Old Testament, right? Whatever was on the mercy seat atoned for what was on the inside. And here's something that's interesting. You know, I think it's the book of James, or no, Peter, it says that God is using us as living stones, right, to build spiritual houses. What does that mean, that we are now the temple of God? We now house the Holy Spirit. But uh, uh, it's so important to acknowledge the blood of Jesus. So when I go into the throne room of grace, I obtain mercy, right? And it's the blood of Jesus, it's what sits upon the mercy seat that atones for the iniquity in my own heart. And I thank God that his mercies are new each and every morning right? Every morning I can go in to the throne room of grace and obtain mercy, but then keep reading access grace so I don't have to keep falling in the same sin pattern over and over again. Remember what Marshall Townsley said, uh, he washes the slate clean with his mercy. Mercy creates a new opportunity and then grace fills it with success. Amen? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hebrews nine 11. I'll just read what he did. But Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That's what I'm saying. The Old Testament tabernacle is done. It, it, it's no longer around, but the, the heavenly one remains forever. He says in verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once For all, having obtained eternal redemption. Thank you, Jesus. Verse 13, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. That was a mouthful, and it's so good. And sometimes you read that and you go, that sounds really intense. A lot of of things going on there. Basically, he's saying, listen, if the Old Testament and the sacrifice of an animal was good enough back then, how much more does the eternal sacrifice of Jesus, who only died once, he's not going to die again because he's perfect. It's the perfect, permanent sacrifice, how much more will that cleanse your mind from trying to to obtain God's grace and forgiveness on your own? He says, it's not works-based. It's Jesus-based. Acknowledge the blood. Acknowledge what was sprinkled upon the mercy seat. You know, in Exodus 25, God told Moses that it was at the mercy seat that he would meet with him. Not anywhere else. He said, at the mercy seat is where I will meet with you. So there's something to be said about that. man. if you want the presence of God in your life, if you want God to meet with you, man, it starts at the mercy seat. It starts at acknowledging the blood of Jesus. You want God to move in your life? Acknowledge the blood and not just acknowledge, apply it in your life. Be thankful for it. The blood of Jesus has atoned for your sin forever. He's not dying again. And I don't want one drop of his blood to be shed in vain. So i got to understand mercy. i got to understand his forgiveness. And i got to apply the blood. Amen? He who has been forgiven little loves little. Man, I'm running out of time. But he who has been forgiven much loves much. You know, there's a parable in the New Testament that speaks to this as well. And this is when um, uh, Peter was trying to find a loophole in how many times he needed to forgive somebody. Um, he was asking God, you know, seven times, what, you know, that, that seems like a lot. If somebody offends me seven times and I forgive them seven times, that's pretty good. And he goes, no, seven times, 70, 490 times, which really there's no number on it. He just said, hey, the answer will always be forgive. You got to forgive. You got to forgive. So Matthew 18, 23, this is a parable that he used. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And we, when he had begun to settle accounts, One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he who was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and the payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet. He begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw that he had been done, what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. That's a very powerful passage of scripture. This is why we need to be continually meditating on his mercy and the debt that was forgiven of us. How quickly we forget forget that God's mercy triumphs over his judgment of us. Come on. And in James chapter two, that's where we find that scripture. We find that the mercy triumphs over judgment, but we'll, we'll look at it in context a little bit. This is what was happening. The really rich one percenters were coming into church wearing their Gucci and their Prada. And they were like, oh, you guys are awesome. Come on, sit in the front row, whatever you want. And then the poorer people would come in and they would make them stand in the back and they would judge them. And this is what uh, Peter was saying. He was like, uh, excuse me? Like, this is not the law of love. This is not what Christians should be doing. You're showing partiality based on looks. You're judging someone based on looks. You don't even know that person's heart, but you're judging them. And then he goes on to say this, verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. He's saying, hey, God is not going to show you any mercy at all. If you can't be merciful to others. Wow, sounds a lot like the law of sowing and reaping. It's a principle that doesn't just exist for money. Wow, whatever you sow, you will reap. Come on, there's going to be coming a time in your life when you're going to need a lot of mercy. So you better start sowing it now. This needs to be an anthem in your life. When you get into a fight with your spouse, mercy triumphs over judgment. When someone cuts you off in traffic, mercy triumphs over judgment. When someone in the church offends you, mercy triumphs over judgment. When you've been deeply wounded, rightfully so, and all you want is vengeance, mercy triumphs over judgment. Declare this over yourself this morning. I delight in showing mercy. Come on. You have to say it a few times because even when you say that, you're like, (laughs) it's true. I delight in showing mercy. He who has been forgiven little, loves little. Man, you gotta be aware of the debt that was completely wiped clean for you. And then you will be able to forgive and show mercy to others, amen? Real quick, I'm out of time. I wanna give you a few points on forgiveness, okay? Because that's what mercy is. They're almost interchangeable, mercy and forgiveness and compassion. Number one, forgiveness is what jumpstarts your healing, okay? You can't recover from the wound of whatever happened to you until you make the choice to forgive. And there's an unknown quote that I read, and it really opened my eyes. Um, I don't know who, who said this. It's not me. Um, but it says this, often trauma keeps us at the age we experienced it. A lot of people are exactly the age that their hurt came from. You wonder why you're not growing in life and you're not healing in life. Man, you've been wounded 20 years ago and you're exactly that age maturity-wise. We've got a bunch of emotional babies walking around because they're choosing to not forgive. You know what happens with a wound that can't heal? Man, it begins to fester and spread and get bigger And even the slightest thing will damage that even more because it's unprotected. There's something about forgiveness that brings a layering of protection in your life. Come on, you have an open wound and then you encounter someone and something that they say hits that open wound and it hurts. Because you chose not to forgive however many years ago. You got to forgive. We can't afford to have emotional babies walking around at the same age that their hurt came from. And, he, and forgiveness is a choice. You can do it. Forgiveness is what jumpstarts your healing. Number two, forgiveness reclaims your power. Past hurts, um, disappointments, and, and pain can become, they can become a part of your identity if you let them. And then you begin to identify with the wound. You begin to identify with the experience that hurt you. And you become a victim. You play the role of a victim. And you're walking around defeated all the time as a victim. But when you choose to forgive, you regain that power back. It gets you out of victim mode and into victorious mode. Come on, Jesus paid for you to get above that thing. Come on, I would hate to get to the end of my life and he's like, you played the victim. You played the victim for, for your entire life. I paid for you to become the victor. Come on, forgiveness reclaims your power. It allows you to stop playing the role of the victim and reclaim your power. Number three, forgiveness is is not for the other person. It's for you. It's what sets you free. It's what gives you peace. It's what allows you to move forward. And this is a sad reality because the person that offended you more times than not doesn't even know that they did. And they're walking around as free as a bird and you are living in a jail cell that you created by yourself insisting that they built it <sighs> man they've already moved on and they're living their lives i think i heard i heard a i heard a quote about like this for unforgiveness it says being in unforgiveness is like drinking poison and affecting it and expecting it to kill the other person <laughs> it's it's just killing you Forgiveness is not for the other person, it's for you. Uh, number four, forgiveness is usually a process, all right? I wish it happened instantaneously. Sometimes it does, but more times um, than not, it's a, it's a process. And, and listen to this, it takes time for your emotions to catch up with the decision that you've made. I'll say that again. It takes time for your emotions to catch up with the decision that you've made. Corey Tenboom said this, forgiveness is an act of the will, and it will function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. It's a choice that you make regardless of how you feel. And if every day you choose to forgive, man, there's been people in my life that I've forgiven, you know, however many years ago. And every day, I remind myself, I forgave him. I've forgiven that person. I've forgiven that person. And you keep reminding yourself, I've forgiven that person. I choose to forgive. Eventually, your emotions catch up with the decision that you've made, and then you can stand before that person completely unaffected, not bitter, and you actually love that person once again. Come on. And number five, forgiveness plants the seed of compassion. Forgiveness plants the seed of of compassion. When we're in unforgiveness, we're so focused on ourselves and what has been done to us, right? We play the role of the victim and we hear about what someone else is going through and we go, when I mean, if they only knew what happened to me, if they only knew how hurt I was. You just focus on me, 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 me. You lose compassion for any anybody else. Hmm. If they only knew what I've been through. We're so self-centered. We lack empathy. We lack compassion. But when we choose to forgive, the healing comes. We step out of the jail cell, and we can clearly see what others are going through. And that, that seed of compassion has been planted, and it starts to grow, and we, we begin to, to care about others once again. And that's what your life is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about others, right? It plants the seed of compassion. I'll just go through those all once again and then we'll be done. Number one, forgiveness jump starts your healing. Number two, forgiveness reclaims your power. Three, forgiveness is not for the other person, it's for you. Four, it's a process. And five, it plants the seed of compassion. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And he who has been forgiven little, loves little. But listen, each and every one of us have been forgiven much. So let us acknowledge it and love others. And that's how we're going to be undeniable. You know, we don't go and tyrannically force our way on people. We become undeniable in our love for others and showing mercy and forgiveness. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you so much for your mercy. Man, I'm so thankful that I got a seat at the table, that I didn't get what I deserved but you clothed me in robes of righteousness and you set me at the table. I thank you, Father God, that your mercy created a new opportunity and your grace is filling it with success, Father God. I pray that this morning that we have a healthy concept of both mercy and grace, and not just a concept, but a true revelation that we can apply in our lives, that we acknowledge mercy and we extend mercy to others, Father God. Help us live how you want us to live in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Listen, you guys can stand up. Thank you so much. Hey, tonight, um, come back because we have a very uh, great treat for you. Jamie Birdsey is going to be teaching tonight on healing, and it's epic. So come back tonight, 6 p.m. Come early. Get your spot in the front, and you're going to hear another great word. Uh, Hopefully, you guys are encouraged and equipped, um, and we'll see you Tonight and next week, remember corporate prayer times. Remember take 10s on Facebook. Tune in. And uh, am I forgetting anything else? I think that's it, right? Awesome. All right, say this as we go. What God did in Christ Jesus far exceeds any damage done to me by Adam's fall. All right, we'll see you guys tonight at six.